Welcome to the Grace South Bay Church Podcast, where we discuss the sermon, theological ideas, and how to live for a story larger than ourselves. I'm Matt Cabot, an elder at Grace South Bay and host of the podcast. Today, we continue our discussion in a series called Letters from John That You May Know. In a sermon titled Lay Down, Pastor Stephen discusses what it means to lay down our lives in the service of others. We'll talk about that and more on today's podcast. We're in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. Glad you're with us. Let's dig in. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, so, um, how does being a child of God change the way we look at other people? When John talks about being a child of God, he, he talks about being born of God. One of the chief ways that he employs this analogy is first to highlight God's character uh, or his actions towards us, and then imply or come out and say the children of God should behave like their father. Um, more than should, they will. They will behave like their father. They are born of God, or rather reborn, with God's characteristics encoded in their new person. So he changes the way that we look at other people. In our sin, uh, relationships with others are broken. They're twisted, contorted, and we approach others always with the mind of what they can give us. Not necessarily money, but maybe status or connection to other people, maybe an ego boost or approval um, enabling us to continue on in some behavior. Whatever it is, uh, we are looking to get something from other people. And the world tells us, keep a relationship as long as they serve that purpose, whatever that purpose might be. And when they cease to give you what you want, you cut them off, you cut them out. I think of the very first broken human relationship that we see in Scripture between Adam and Eve. They were made for each other, perfectly compatible, but then when sin entered the picture, um, Adam realized that he could use Eve to cover his own failure. So when God comes and says, what's gone wrong, Adam's relationship with Eve becomes one of scapegoating. He just wants to put all the blame on her. Conversely, God's relationship with humans is based entirely on him giving everything and receiving nothing. His glory, his status, his love, his riches, his time, his family, he gives all of it to us on the cross. And what do we give him? Nothing. Uh, our sin, our neediness, he gives us everything and we give him nothing. And that changes us uh, in two ways. First, as the Apostle John says here in his uh, letter, we will live like our Father, giving everything to people while receiving nothing. But secondly, it encourages us with the reality that we've already been given everything, which means that we can give anything at all, knowing that we've been given everything from God. So I see one, one potential problem in this mm -hmm. whole thing. Um, so getting involved in other people's lives is risky. I mean, after all, we might be drawn into their mess. Uh, so why should we do it? And, and what if we're afraid to do it? Yeah, uh, relationship is risky, without a doubt. All relationship is risky. C.S. Lewis, in his work, The Four Loves, uh, I, I love this quote. He says, love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. That's what we're walking into when we try to meet someone in their need, in their brokenness, uh, and love them. Loving others, as God defines love, is at minimum going to be inefficient. 
And that's a, a bad word for us in our culture, right. right? Inefficiency is not something that we like. You know, purposely walking into an action or a relationship that's inefficient, um, our world scoffs at such a thing. Mm. Loving others is, at the bare minimum, going to be that. But it's always going to be detrimental to our idealized, self-actualized life. Uh, what we could have, what we dream of having, to love others means to sacrifice something, at minimum, some time. Um, so yes, without a doubt, it's going to be risky. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be challenging. But in that inefficiency and in that messiness, we become like Jesus. We're united to Jesus, who purposefully got involved in our lives. He was drawn into the mess. Actually, he took our mess upon himself. And so there's this unity with our uh Savior that comes when we enter into someone else's neediness, and some of it kind of, you know, comes into our own world, and we take it upon ourselves. Um, and it, being afraid to love others, to enter into their mess, I, I don't think is a bad thing. You know, uh, fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. Fear is uh, a, a, an honest opportunity to look at your heart and look at what mm. you're valuing. Um, and not to, uh, you know, be the guy who plugs his own stuff on a podcast, but I would encourage folks to come uh, to Grace uh, this Sunday to hear the next sermon. Uh, at the we're, we're looking at the end of First John chapter 4, where uh, John talks about perfect love chasing away fear. Yes. Um, and so we'll address that a little bit, and it'll be on the podcast eventually as well. But uh, fear of loving people knowing the mess that it could bring, knowing the inefficiency, the uncomfortable situations we could get into, uh, I think is a natural thing, but God speaks into that as well. Yes, he does. And so this, the, the uh, title of this whole sermon series is uh, That You May Know. And uh, the purpose of, of laying our lives down for other or getting involved with other people is uh, to know that, that God is, is in us. And you said in the sermon, if you see yourself loving someone else, that's an assurance that God is in you. But couldn't an atheist be loving toward those in need as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I know uh, atheists who love people better than I do, right? They're more loving towards people uh, than a lot of Christians. Uh, John, I think, is making a difference between committing acts of love and being loving. Um, but before we get into that, non-Christians who commit acts of love, uh, we don't call them loving acts because as humans, we all got together and said, here's the moral bar for love. If you do anything above it, that's a loving thing. Anything below it, it's not loving. Um, but the reality is every human is made in the image of God. We all bear God's uh, characteristic fingerprints uh, on our souls. Um, despite the sin that's come into our lives and twisted and contorted that image, we all still bear His image. And God is always loving. In all of his actions, they are done out of love. He is always loving, always has been loving, always will be loving. And so those fingerprints of love are in us. And any act of love that we commit, whether you're a Christian, a Buddhist, an atheist, an agnostic, whatever, any act of love we commit is merely reflecting mm -hmm. those fingerprints of love that are God's fingerprints in us. Now, what John is talking about is something different. Instead of, of, of doing something loving, uh, he's talking about the bend of your heart to recognize the needs of others and be willing to sacrifice something to meet those needs. What he's talking about here in this passage 
is the idea that there were these false teachers coming around saying the world doesn't really matter. The, the physical world doesn't really matter. Human need doesn't really matter. What's really important is knowing the truth about God, is having the special knowledge that Jesus revealed to us. You don't have to worry about the needs of people around you. And what John is saying here is if you recognize yourself seeing a need in your brother or sister and desiring to give of your own time or your treasures or your talents to meet that need, that's more than just the fingerprints of God. That's God's Spirit dwelling in you, giving you desire to sacrifice. Sacrifice is God's ultimate act of love towards us, and when that comes out in us, it's Him in us. It's not us doing it in our own. What if we don't see that desire? I mean, what if we're still selfish? Should we be concerned that we're not abiding in God or that God is not abiding in us? Yeah. Um, I don't really want to ruin this for you, Matt, but you will be selfish until the day that you die. No! Yes, absolutely. Your sin will remain I'm with so you disillusioned by uh, this until whole thing. you die or Jesus returns. Uh, hopefully that gets rid of a little condemnation, right? Not it like does. you got to figure it out right now. you got to be selfless right now. Um, but here's the other thing that's really important. God abiding in us and us abiding in Him, is not contingent upon whether or not we live selflessly, right? So another way to say that would be um, selfishness doesn't preclude God from abiding in you or you from abiding in Him, right? It's not like God breaks into your heart, He sets up residence, and then looks around and goes, wow, this is actually really gross and messy, Uh, and so He checks out. He knows what He's gotten Himself into. He's there for you, there to make changes, right? And as we talked about uh, two weeks ago in the passage where John tells uh, the people of his church to practice righteousness, um, any awareness of selfishness, right, my ability to admit I'm selfish, to look at something, take a step back and go, oh man, that that was terrible, that was really selfish, that is God giving us an opportunity to practice righteousness. And um, that righteous practice looks like repentance and belief, asking for forgiveness from the person we've acted selfishly toward, uh, asking for forgiveness from God for uh, putting ourselves in the topmost spot of our own hearts, and believing that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, our awareness of selfishness, for whatever reason, is God giving, giving us that opportunity shining a a light into that dark corner of our heart, giving us a chance to uh, turn it over to him, let him come in and change it. Now, the concern should come in when we see ourselves behaving selfishly, um, being concerned only about uh, what our spouse can do for us, make us feel, only concerned about how the people we work with are going to make us look in the eyes of our boss. When we're able to take a step back and go, actually man, that's just really selfish, and we don't care, and we don't do anything about it. What John says here is, in that, you are giving sin residence in your heart, and God will not coexist with sin. And so that's where we should, uh, red flags should be going off, warning bells, we should be paying attention to what's happening. Um, Doesn't mean that God's not abiding there, it just means that you are not willing to give that corner of your heart at this time over, um, and God says, give, it, give me all of it. I want your whole heart. Well, let's get to the heart of the matter. You like what I did there? That was good. Yeah, you are on you. a roll. Right, I am on a roll. Uh, so how does our heart condemn us? 
And and what should we do if when it does? Yeah, uh, one of the, one question that we could spend another week talking about here without moving, just talking about all the ways that our hearts condemn us. I mean, everyone can see all my public failures, right? When I um, get angry with my kids at the grocery store, everybody can see that. When I um, get judgmental towards other people for their poor driving, everybody can see that. Um, That's okay, though. The driving thing is okay. There's a certain yeah. righteousness in That's that. another podcast for another that, time. It is, yes. Um, but I can see what no one sees, right? And I can hear my own judgmental thoughts in my head that no one else hears, right? The jealousy and the envy of my own inner conversation. Um, I know so much more of my own sin than you do. Um, and, and, and so that means I've got many more ways to condemn myself than you do, right? You can point out you know, one X of my sin, I could point out five X of my sin. Um, What John is talking about here is that our hearts often bring those failures up while we're trying to love other people. That's the context of the conversation that he's talking about. Um, Let me give you a good example, a a hypothetical. We finish up here, we go to the parking lot, and your car won't start. And so you give me a call and say, hey, can you come down and drive me uh, to downtown San Jose? I'm going to meet my wife for lunch. Um, of course I will, because I'm kind. We get in the car, drive 12 minutes down to San Jose, uh, I drive all, drop you off, drive all the way back. Um, and in my mind, I might be able to think, I'm so glad I was able to help Matt meet his wife for lunch. But then my heart could sneak in and say, oh, you, you only did that because you wanted him to like you. Mm. right? You don't actually love Matt you just want him to approve of who you are and how you live, right? You, you don't really love him. You just use him to get some approval, right? And maybe that's right. My heart knows my own motives. So what should I do? You asked that question. What should yes. we do? Uh, John here in chapter 3, verse 20 says, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. What John is saying is this, right? There's an order of magnitude issue. You know one X of my sin. I know 5x of my sin, but God knows all of my sin, 10 billion x, right? Like whatever number you want to put there. All of my sin, past, present, and future, he has the right and the, the position to condemn me so much more accurately and precisely than you could condemn me, than I could condemn myself, right? But he took that accurate, precise condemnation of every single thing that I've done wrong upon himself. Instead of walking up to me and saying, let me begin telling you how you failed and what your punishment is for it, he says, I know how you failed, and I've taken that punishment for you. Reminding myself of that truth, right? Preaching the gospel to my own heart, uh, that fundamental gospel of God knows you way more than you know yourself, and he still loved you, loved you so much that he became man. He lived a life of perfect obedience, and he died the death that I deserve to die, and he rose again, right? Like, reminding myself of that. And also, having people in my life whom I trust to lovingly tell me, you are stuck in a loop of self-condemnation. This is the truth of what Jesus sees in you. This is the truth of what Jesus has done for you. Live free. Repent and believe. Having those two things going on is is critical for us when we get stuck in that uh, our hearts condemning us loop.
It sounds like there's a gospel rhythm that frees us from self-condemnation. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is uh, the simplistic rhythm of the gospel, repent and believe, right? Repent and believe. Over and over in Scripture, that's what we see. John, uh, in this previous passage, as I said earlier, is talking about practicing righteousness. Um, and in the Bible, there is one way to be righteous, right? It's to follow every single letter of the law that God has given us perfectly all the time in every way. Well, we can't do that. But God in His mercy provided another path to righteousness, receiving the, the righteousness of Jesus. And how do we do that? How do we receive it? How do we rest in it? We repent of the fact that we didn't earn it, that we continue to actually earn punishment instead by our sin, repenting of our sin and believing that God not only forgives us of our sin, but he imputes Jesus's righteousness to us. He gives it to us so that when he sees us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees the perfect obedience and righteousness of his son, right? This is the two, two sides of the same coin. Repent of your failure and believe that God has separated your sin from you so far as the East is from the West. Repent and believe. What are the lies that we tell ourselves about God? Oh, gosh. Um, man, that's a loaded question. Um, this podcast would easily become a counseling session if mm. we walk down this road. Like, our life stories imprint us with so many assumptions, uh, so many subconscious uh, patterns regarding authority and relationships and expectations and attitudes. Um, and so much of that comes out in what we assume God thinks of us, how we live day in and day out, uh, interacting with God in our hearts and our minds. Right? Like if, if we had parents or, or guardians or relatives or whoever that really only paid us attention when we performed well at school or athletics or art or whatever it is, um, it's easy for us to come to believe that God only cares about what we do. And if we're not doing the things he wants from us, then he just isn't really interested in us. Mm -hmm. um, we think that God holds on to our failures uh, and just chalks it up over and over again to us being a bad seed, right? Like, you're never going to get better. It's just who you are. Maybe we heard that message growing up. Um, we think that God's forgiveness hinges upon our actual lasting change of habit. So when you've fallen into sin for the hundredth time, that same sin over and over again, it's easy to come to believe that God's only got so much forgiveness to give you, right? And he's actually pretty stingy with his uh, blessings, right? That's another one that we believe, that God only wants to give us so much, and, and when we abuse the blessings that he's given us or we don't use them the right way, he's not going to give us any more, right? Often uh, I hear people talking about uh, the blessing that's come into their life. Maybe it's a new job or a new relationship or a, a new place to live or, or whatever, and there's this hesitancy of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, things are too good right now. Um, God's never just good all the time. Mm -hmm. He gives us good things, but then bad stuff comes, right? The, the, these are the um, beliefs that we have. Or I, I think this one uh, comes from growing up for most of us, right? Like, we know God's not angry with us. He sent his son Jesus to die for us, right? He loves us. He's not angry, He's just disappointed. Hmm. Yeah. How many times did we hear that growing up, right. right? Or the opposite, right? God has guaranteed that we're going to heaven, right? Jesus died for us. Our sins are forgiven. And he doesn't really care what I do right now. Like, I can live however I want to live, 
and he's just, just going to forgive me of all the stuff I do between now and when I die. I'm going to go to heaven anyway. Um, let me give you a quick personal example. So as a middle child of divorced parents, one of my chief concerns, like longings of my heart, is to keep peace. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to upset anyone or bring any more calamity into the world knowing that other people are bringing their own calamity in. I just want to keep the peace. And so if I experience some kind of disappointment in my heart or some unmet expectation or frustration with what God's doing or some spiritual upheaval, my natural reaction is, don't bring that to God. He's got bigger stuff to deal with. He doesn't actually uh, care about what you're going through because it's just not that important compared to what else is going on. Um, that's a lie. Yeah. If that were true, there are major sections of Scripture we should rip out, right? Mm. The Psalms we should just throw away, cast off, if God doesn't really care about what's going on in our heart. But because of my own personality, because of the way that I grew up and how this you know, character flaw was manifested and, and grown in me through my situations, um, that's what I've come to believe about God. So the flip side of that question is, what are the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves? Sure. Uh, again, we could sit here for days. I mean, you and I could just name all the lies that we believe about ourselves, and they are so closely tied yeah. to our life story. What other people told us about who we are, either verbally or you know, implicitly, how they treated us growing up, all of that becomes uh, the way we talk about ourselves. It forms our inner monologues. Uh, we are the loudest voice in our own heads. And I think a quick summary of the lies that we tell ourselves day to day would be to say that we place ourselves in the extremes uh, of a spectrum. Uh, I am just as quick to play up my goodness, my righteousness, my achievement, as I am to focus on my own sin, my thoughts, my words, my deeds that come up short, that fail. What a failure I am. I don't deserve to be loved. I don't deserve to be forgiven. We vacillate between those two polar extremes very, very easily. We do something good or something helpful, and all of a sudden we want to be crowned chief, uh, righteous person mm -hmm. of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. We want everybody to know, right? We do something kind for our spouse, not in their view, they don't see it, and then we just wait to be applauded for that. <laughs> but the opposite is right. true. Maybe we get mad at our spouse, or maybe we get mad at a neighbor, or we, you know, blow up at the person in line in front of us at the bank because they didn't have the slip, the deposit slip filled out correctly. Mm -hmm. And then our inner monologue comes in and says, you are worthless. Mm -hmm. How could you yell at that person? How could you think those hateful things? How could you? You are worthless and unlovable. We tell ourselves these lies. Um, and, and I think it's important to note that the Bible tells us something very different. Mm -hmm. um, Jack Miller summarized it really well. He said that you are far more sinful than you could ever imagine, but you are far more loved than you ever dared hope. Hmm. And I think that's really important for us yes. to cling to. At the end of your sermon, you issued a challenge to the congregation about reaching out to two people in our lives? You want to reissue that challenge? Sure, yeah. I, I think one thing I hear a lot when we start talking about living sacrificially, loving others, knowing that it's going to cost us something, that it might get messy, I hear people often say, I don't even know where to start. Uh, 
It seems like there's so many needs in the lives of people around me. Um, What can I do about that? It seems overwhelming. And so because I don't know where to start, I don't start. And my point was it doesn't have to be big, right? Mm -hmm. Loving other people can start with something as simple as finding two people that you know in your life. They can be your next door neighbor. They could be a friend of uh, a friend. They could be somebody who goes to your gym. It could be the parents of a friend of your child's that you run into a car pickup at school. Two people that you are committing to, at minimum, pray for. And then, on top of that, find some time to ask them some questions. We, particularly here in San Jose, in Silicon Valley, we live in this culture that is lacking um, community and care, and so often people feel incredibly isolated. And so the challenge was, write these two names down, pray for them every day. Maybe you don't know what to pray for, that's okay, just pray for them. God knows what's going on in their life, pray for those people. And when you see them, ask a couple questions, not so that you can learn what to pray for, not so that you can like figure them out and know how to love them and meet their needs, but just to learn about them, just to give them the opportunity to tell you about themselves. And maybe that leads to a deeper conversation. Maybe that leads to you guys going out for coffee or grabbing a meal together or you know, having their family over for a play date or scheduling a time to go to the same class at the, at the gym, whatever it is. Maybe it leads to that. Maybe it doesn't. But if you spend a week praying for two people that you kind of know but kind of don't, God will change the way that you view those people. Mm. Um, That's how he works. When you start to take notice of other people, not for what they can give you, but potentially for what they need, that will change the way that you see them. And it is incredibly loving. How is it not loving people to bring them in front of the throne of the God of the universe Mm. who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and longs to bless his people? It is loving them to simply pray for them. Very good practical advice in terms of how to go out to live for a story larger than ourselves. Absolutely. Stephen, thanks again for your time this morning. Thanks, Matt. Grace South Bay Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. at Crossroads Bible Church in San Jose, California. You can listen to our sermons and this podcast on iTunes and Spotify and on our website at gracesouthbay.com. Thanks for listening.